that's a rousing welcome. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Welcome. And uh, my name's Eric Paffenfuss. My wife and I, of course, uh, own the Midtown Scholar. And I'm also the mayor of Harrisburg. It is. <laughs> really political. Our democratic enclave in the middle of central Pennsylvania. <laughs> it is a pleasure to welcome everybody here tonight for best-selling authors Dan Pfeiffer and DeRay McKesson. <laughs> now, before we begin, we have some guidelines, and I want to make this event go as smooth as possible. At this time, will you please take out your phone and join me as we power off and silence our cell phones? <laughs> we want to welcome C-SPAN tonight. Book TV, they're going to be filming uh, and uh, check Book TV for the listings, but they usually get them up and running real quick, but uh, we want to try not to have any eruptions, interruptions, so thank you. So at this time, I want to introduce our speakers, but before I do, I want to quickly plug one upcoming event. First of all, grab one of our flyers. There's a lot of great talks coming up. We've got some incredible best-selling authors coming, but Friday, March 6th, um, you might be particularly interested in Professor Gretchen Soren, who's written a book called Driving While Black, and it's the true story of the Green Book and its effects. So uh, that'll be fun, and that's, uh, that is at 7 o'clock. All right. Dan Pfeiffer is the number one New York Times best-selling author of Yes, We Still Can. And, all right. Co-host, of course, of Pod Save America. <laughs> One of Barack Obama's longest-serving advisors, he was White House Director of Communications under President Obama from 2009 to 2013. Senior, oh, you're going to clap for the whole bio. Senior advisor to the president from 2013 to 2015. Currently lives in the Bay Area with his wife and their daughter. Give me up. <laughs> Interviewing Dan this evening will be DeRay McKesson. Yeah! DeRay is a civil rights activist focused primarily on issues of innovation, equity, and justice. Born and raised in Baltimore, graduated, and holds an honorary doctorate from the New School, the Maryland Institute of the College of Art. And he is the author of the new book, On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope. Yes. And host of Pod Save the People. And as a leading voice in the Black Lives Matter movement, Teray has worked to connect individuals with knowledge and tools to provide citizens and policymakers with common sense policies that ensure equity. And he's been praised by President Obama for his work as a community organizer, has advised officials at all levels of government, and continues to provide capacity to activists and organizers and influencers to make an impact today. Now, the book you have in your hands this evening, we received as you came in, is the unsubtly titled Untrumping America, <laughs> which we can't do soon enough. <laughs> it is a sharp political playbook for how Democrats can take on Trump, McConnell, Fox News, and the rest of the Republican Party. And it is a powerful call for progressives to get smarter, tougher, and more aggressive in order to make America a democracy again. So without further ado, please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Dan Pfeiffer and DeRay McKesson.
It is good to be here. Excited to be in conversation with my fellow crooked friend. Uh, and I see all these friend of the pod, so always good to see other friends. Uh, let's jump right in, Dan. How do you feel about this moment in politics? What, what's your the big idea? Do you think that we can untrump America? That is the that is the question on the ballot in 2020. And the reason I wrote the book was I think there is nothing more important than winning this election in 2020. But I've never been more convinced that winning this election is not enough, because too I, I think one of the main things that drove me to write it was I think too many Democrats in Washington and around the country think that Donald Trump is an aberration. And I have come to the conclusion that he is the logical extension of the Republican Party over the last many, many years, but particularly since Barack Obama was elected. And all of the forces that allowed someone like Donald Trump to become president will still be present when he leaves. So we have to, we have to beat him, but then we have to take a very aggressive effort to fix the problems in our politics that allow someone like Donald Trump to be president of the United States. In the beginning, you talk about the difference between voters who focus on ideology and voters who focus on policy. Can you talk about why you make that distinction? Sure. I've been watching, as I'm sure all you have, the 700 Democratic debates we've had. <laughs> and every one of them have, I think, been incredibly and perhaps endearingly substantive about what, whether we're going to have Medicare for all or Medicare for some uh, or Green New Deal or, you know, whether we, whether we need to get to 50% carbon emissions by this date or that date. And I feel like, it, like and that's great because substance is important and it's, and it's actually, I think, progress for our political conversation we were having substantive debates in the Democratic Party. Wednesday's night, Wednesday night's debate was a little different, but <laughs> the, what I think that that conversation is a little bit whistling past the graveyard because I think our politics, both the institutions of politics that have been around for a long time plus a very ruthless strategy put in place by the Republicans, have politics rigged against the progressive views of the majority of Americans. And if we don't tackle political and democratic reform first, it doesn't matter whether you are a revolutionary Berniecrat, you're a centrist in the middle, it doesn't matter if you want Medicare for all, Medicare for some, Medicare for one single additional person in America. If we don't do deal with things like the problems with the Senate, with with the structures in our politics around voter suppression, gerrymandering, that push people out of the press. We don't deal with that. It doesn't matter what policies we have. And so I'm trying to, I, I wrote this, I want people to focus as much on the how we get things done as the what we should do when we can. And let's get to the what we should do. Uh, but one of the things when you talk about Trump not being an aberration but an extension, I was interested in the way you talked about the importance of race, that it seems like a racial politics has allowed Trump to exist in this way. Can you talk about the, the importance of a racial grievance, as you note in the book? Sure. The, what has, like politic, the way to understand politicians is, I think, it's actually much more simple than you would think. It's, you basically have to understand their political incentives, right? And what they want to do is stay in office. And so the Republican Party is dependent upon a shrinking almost entirely white base. And so the way in which, so the only way they can win is to get as, get as much support and energy out of that base as humanly possible. And what they have discovered is the best way to do that is with racial grievance rhetoric, to scare white people about non-white people. That, that is uh, people taking their jobs, that is terrorists, that is African Americans, it is all across the board. And that, is, that has been going on for that is the long history of the Republican Party since the passage of the Voting Rights Act. I think it, you can see it from the Nixon Southern strategy. You can see it with 
uh, Ronald Reagan going to uh, Mississippi and giving a states' rights speech, which is about as subtle as a hammer to the head. It, it, you can see it in uh, George H.W. Bush running the, his campaign running the Willie Horton ad, which was an ad so racist that all future racist ads are referred to as Willie Horton ads. <laughs> and so, and, and what's in, the reason why I think we have to be so serious about this is with every passing day, the, ma the majority of the country becomes younger, more progressive, and more diverse, which means the Republicans need more and more out of that white base, which means the racial grievance rhetoric is going to get worse and worse. And so we have to, and they, they can only get away with that because of things they've done to reduce the political power of young people and people of color in this country. So until we address that, Republicans are going to keep doing what they've been doing. Now, is it the strategy on the left that people should fight as hard as the Trump people have fought? That like, there's an argument that you address, but there's this argument that people should be as aggressive as the other side, or they should be as intense because that is sort of politics that people are interested in. What's your take on that? I think there, I refer to this as the paler, the paler shade of orange strategy of politics. Like, should we be <laughs> like Trump? And the answer to that, I think, is definitively no. Because, just because we want to be able to look in the mirror in the morning, but also that strategy does not work for Democrats, right? The Republicans are trying to get, as I said, a, as many people of a group of people who are very likely to turn out to turn out. And they want as few people who don't often turn out to turn out. Democrats can also, fear works for them. Fear and cynicism work for them. We need hope and inspiration because we have to get our, our standard base who turns out all the time to turn out, but then we also need to convince new voters to become, to become voters and become Democrats. We need to convince people who may be turned off by the process. And so if we adopt cynical strategies, we will reduce Democratic turnout. If we reduce Democratic turnout, we will lose. Do you think that people still are enamored with hope? That a lot of people feel like the hope train sort of ended in the Obama moment. No offense, we love you yeah. uh, <laughs> and we love Obama. Uh, but people are worried about hope as like actually a mobilizing strategy for people. I, I think we have to recognize that a lot has happened since Barack Obama said yes we can in 2008. And, the, and I, like, I, the way I describe it in the book is I think Democrats have to be what John F. Kennedy referred to his foreign policy. But our thing, that should be our political strategy, which is, which is idealist without illusions, right? I think we have to be hopeful in the idea that the country can be more unified, but very clear-eyed about who the Republicans in Washington are. It doesn't matter. The idea that the Republicans are going to have an epiphany when Trump loses or that Mitch McConnell is going to do a deal with one of these Democrats, that is not going to happen. But we, I think we should believe and aspire, try to aspire to something better. But we've got to be tough and we've got to be strategic about political power. I think we have not been enough, as strategic or tough enough with political power in the past. And talking about that, what do we do about the party? That there are, you note in the book too that you know during the Obama years we lost a lot of governorships, we lost a lot of people in Congress. That it seems like there was a, something happened to the infrastructure of the party that did not set us up well when we get a Trump. What do we do about that? And and do you think that was it the Obama administration? Did, did they just drop the ball? Did people not pay attention to the down ballot stuff? What happened? I think it's all of the above. I think the primary driver of the Democratic losses in, during the Obama years at the bottom of the ballot were, came from two things. One, a terrible economy. The, the 2010 election was a disaster, and unemployment was at 10%. It was coming two years after a bipartisan bailout of the banks. The economy was recovering much more slowly than it had. And the thing that people forget, which was very important with that one, was Citizens United decision happened in January of 2010 which meant that the Democratic ability to keep up 
in campaign spending in that election went away that day, and our candidates were washed away in a wave of Koch brothers and corporate-funded money in the end. Having said that, what I think and what I argue for in the book is that Democrats need to be less obsessed with the White House, which I know seems like a crazy thing to say as we sit here today, but we like there was not enough focus from us, there's not enough focus from Congress, from our congressional, there's not enough focus from the Democratic donor base, Democratic activists on the races that happened down ballot. Because what I think we have not paid enough attention to is political power comes from down ballot, right? If you control the state legislature and the governorship, you can make it easier for people to vote. Republicans took over the state legislatures and governors in all the big swing states after 2010. And the very first thing they did was voter ID laws, getting rid of um, early voting, very specifically getting rid of the days on the calendar that were where the most African-American voter, voters early voted. When they had to get rid of a day, they randomly somehow picked that one out of a hat. And so we have to, but, and then it's also policy, right? Like the states where they have Democratic governors and legislatures expanded Medicaid and people's lives were saved. The states that had Republican governors and Republican legislatures did not expand Medicaid and people lost their lives. Raise the minimum wage, protect additional civil rights, pass gun control laws, and so we have to restructure the party, and I put some ideas forward in the book, that makes it easier for the party to focus on those things. But it is a real mentality shift, and it's one that I think we've really begun to see since 2016, and the successes in Virginia in 2017 and around the country in 2018 are a, are a product of that. What happened to Obama in the sense that he has disappeared from the public landscape? Do you think there's a, a role that he can play in this moment or not? I think the role that he is planning to play, he has two roles he's planning to play in this election. Is this insider knowledge or is this? It's, is I, haven't, this? I, have not, I have not talked to him directly about this, but I feel confident in what I'm about to okay, say. Okay, okay, I'm ready. So um, first is he is a person who is uniquely and maybe the only person in the party with the capacity to unify the party at the end of this primary, whenever that is. And so that is the reason why he is not endorsing, he is not putting his thumb on the scale, he wants to beat whether the nominee is anyone from Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or anyone in the middle. There's gonna be division about it, This is, and but we have to unify, and so I think he's gonna be able to contribute to that. And then second, he, I know he is planning to spend a lot of time on the campaign trail in the fall once we have a nominee and do everything he can to make sure that person is elected. And so his silence is a product of, a, right now, of preserving his ability to unify the party at the end of this primary process. <laughs> I love it. What is So obviously you're in Pod Save America. What, how has that experience informed the way you think about what the Dems need to do with regard to messaging? That it seems like mainstream media isn't as important maybe as it used to be. What is your advice to the party or Dems about how we win in a media world that's changed? I, I am deeply concerned that too many in the party are still adhering to an old way of thinking about communications, which is this model that has been around forever, which is politicians says something to the press. It is then the press's job to tell the public. And the problem with that strategy is twofold. One, the ability in our Facebook-driven, disaggregated, smartphone media world, the, re the press doesn't have the reach it used to have. It also does not have the credibility it used to have. And that's not just for conservative voters who Trump has yelled fake, fake news at all the time. It's also Democratic voters who are more, people are just generally more skeptical of the things the press says. So it has neither the reach nor the credibility 
to play the role it played as recently as eight or nine years ago. And so I think Democrats have to think more holistically about how they get their message out. And they have to think about not just like, not, they don't have to think in terms of their press strategy, they think in terms of their content strategy. And like, in the, the mentality is not what do I tell the press, it's how do, I pers how do I get the information that I know matters to the voters I need to convince to get to a win number in enough states to get to 270 or to win the governorship or win a mayorship. But I think another lesson of this is we have, and this is where Pod Save America and Pod Save the World and, the, and all of Crooked Media comes in, is we have to build up a true, viable, vibrant, progressive media infrastructure in this country. Because in the world of Facebook, media is a quantity game. Everything Trump says is not just Trump and his 50 million or whatever it is, Twitter followers going to people. It is Trump is saying it, and then Fox News is saying it, and we focus all this time and energy on what's, what happens on Fox News on TV, what Sean Hannity says. I mean, that is morally offensive to me, and I wish it did not happen, but it's seen by like three million people. Two, three million too many people, but that's a tiny fraction of people, but what really matters is what Fox puts on Facebook. And Fox has a massive Facebook presence, and Ben Shapiro's people have Facebook, and so there is this huge, um, information organ that's just pumping right-wing propaganda into Facebook. And there is nothing equivalent on the progressive side to do that. So the conversation automatically tilts right. And so therefore, non-political people who don't pay a ton of attention are more likely to be exposed to right-wing, often propaganda, which is often racially divisive, and often completely false, because people in their network are sharing it, and so they're seeing it more often. And so we have to be building up this infrastructure on the left. And that is has begun, but it is happening, I think, way too slow. And that is a project that is going to have to continue long after the 2020 election, even and especially if we win. Because our, if we have a Democratic president and there is not a progressive media ecosystem for them to communicate to their supporters in, then they're, they're going to be, he or she is going to be governing with one hand tied behind their back. And we learned that in the Obama administration. We were, get, we were getting swamped because the Republicans had so much more information firepower than we did and other except when we were in campaigns and we could run ads all the time it was just very very hard to break through because we didn't have folks who were singing from the you know sort of singing from the same song sheet as we were and so my strong hope is that we can we build that to help the next democratic president do you think uh, twitter and facebook have the same impact no they, i mean they they are both incredibly impactful but their impact is very different and so Facebook is the largest media company in the world. It is, I think, overwhelmingly more impactful to people individually because there are just so many more people on it. It is the primary way in which a lot of Americans get their news. And the news they are getting is conservative and tilting right. Twitter has a different impact, which is Twitter is, Twitter is the world that we're, is what, Twitter shapes the political conversation in this country because even though most Americans are not on Twitter, I think like 10% of Americans are on Twitter or something like that, actively on Twitter, but 100% of reporters and politicians and political operatives are, so they're having this very insular conversation. And the incentives for, like, everyone wants, everyone, the incentives for what works on Twitter are very disconnected from what actual people care about, so it sends a lot of politicians and reporters down these bad rabbit holes where they focus, they end up focusing on things that get a lot of retweets, but are actually probably either completely disconnected from the lives of the voters they need to persuade, or they are 
even counterproductive to that because they are missing the conversation. And so, like, we would be, we would all, I, I say every day I should get off Twitter, yet I cannot stop myself, and it's like a real problem. But I think we would be better off if people, if more politicians, more political operatives, and more reporters spent less time. Like, it's a great place to share your information. It's not a great place to get information. I often describe uh, the impact that Twitter has on media as forcing reporters to do man-on-the-street interviews at the craziest convention in the world. Because <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not a representative stand all people. It's people who choose to be on Twitter, which, as someone who does that, it's not a great sign. Right. <laughs> In the Operation 2020 chapter, you outline these things that candidates should be doing to sort of push back on Trump. You talk about acknowledging his failures, sort of not feeding into the way he shapes things. Is there anybody you think doing these things well right now? I know you're not probably going to endorse a candidate here tonight, uh, <laughs> but you could. I, when are you airing this scene? I'm just kidding. Uh, or C-SPAN, sorry. Um, I, yes, the answer to that is... Yes, yes and no, I guess. And it is, it's actually hard to know because the what works in a primary, particularly this primary, in the Democratic President Trump, is very different than it was going to work in a general election. These candidates are going after committed Democratic voters who are very politically engaged. And so, like, for all everything I said about how talking to the media is not the best way to reach people, it's actually a very effective way to reach people if you're trying to win the Iowa caucus or the South Carolina primary. In doing, you know, being on Rachel Maddow or being on CNN or a good New York Times story is something that actually is seen by a lot of people you care about. So they're going to, like, they're going to have to change their behavior when they get to the general and they have to reach a bunch of voters who have paid no attention to this primary. But I do think a couple of the candidates have... You know, both several candidates have very. I talk a lot in there about economic messaging, and that we're only going to win this election if um, if we win the economic battle with Trump. And I think Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren have economic messages in this primary that work very well for that. I think Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Pete Buttigieg probably have, in different ways, the most sophisticated have demonstrated thus far the most sophisticated understanding of. Um, how the media works. I think Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have sort of helped incubate and work with a progressive media infrastructure. I think Pete Buttigieg understands inherently that the person who is creating content all the time and shaping the conversation is winning, which is why he is an omnipresent media figure. It has worked, it's how he went from being the unknown mayor of a very small town to being a front runner because he knew how to be omnipresent in the media, much like Trump. Um, other other candidates have done other things, but you're sort of seeing pieces here, which is what is why why this primary is so hard because you have to guess based on a very small data set about who will be the do the best job navigating a very different environment in the general election. Now, to your to the point you made earlier about the media, Bloomberg seems to be also omnipresent, partly because he can just afford it. Uh, is that do you think that's effective? Maybe not so much in light of this last debate where he <laughs> bombed, but. Uh, What's your take on him? It's the Bloomberg. It's it's very hard to sort of evaluate Bloomberg because it is the, he's the only person who can do what he is doing, right? And so you kind of sort of have to look at two parts of his strategy: is spending a half a billion dollars on advertising effective? Yes, only he can do that, right? That's not available to anyone else. I mean, in an amazing statistic, Bloomberg has now Bloomberg's been in this race for like three months. He has now spent more money on television ads 
in three months than Barack Obama did in the entire 2012 election. And so that, like, yes, that works. Bloomberg also has a theory of the media, which is very similar, which is he is trying to dominate the conversation, both by buying the conversation, but then also doing things. Like today, his campaign bought these billboards in v Vegas, where Trump was, and that we were they were along the route that Trump would have to drive by, and like one of them said, you know, like Hillary won the popular vote, you know, that would bother Trump. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, true. It's fact check true. Another <laughs> one said Trump eats burnt steak. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's effective or not, but Bloomberg has this advantage that, I'm not sure a lot of like really fierce advocates for medium who are like, oh, maybe I won't vote for Trump then. But he, but like he doesn't have to make any decisions, right? We've never had this situation where we have a candidate who they're like, well, we can run these ads, or like every other campaign is like, we, we can run these this ad or this ad, Bloomberg's like, I run both ads. And and I mean, they literally are paying people, and maybe you guys should go sign up on the website, they're paying people $2,500 a month to post on social media about them. Right, like that is not a thing, that's not a strategy that's gonna be available to Democratic nominee Elizabeth Warren, right, if, or whoever. Like they're not gonna be able to afford to, to paying people to post on Facebook for them. You also have a whole thing about, in the how we fix it, about the DNC, and people confuse the DNC and the party all the yeah. time. Can we, do you think the DNC is fixable? You know, I was on, I supported Tom yeah. when he ran for chair, uh, and I was on the transition team for the DNC, and I saw up close and personal, I was like, this is, got a lot of problems. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, <laughs> what do you, can we fix yeah. it? Yes, but we have to understand what it is. Everyone, like, whenever anything goes wrong, anywhere in the party, people are like, why did Tom Perez screw that up? Or if someone has a good idea about like an ad to run or something, they're like, well, why isn't Tom Perez running that ad? What people have to understand is the DNC is not some sort of um, you know, superhero headquarters where all the politicians get together and make all the decisions. It's a completely underfunded um, party organization whose primary job is to assist the state parties and then help the Democratic nominee raise money and put on a convention. Those are the things. And that is and the reason for the reason it is underfunded is because Citizens United happened and the DNC has basically been able like every year can raise basically the same amount of money it's been able to raise with a little bit of increase for 20 years. While the Koch brothers or a Democratic billionaire or Michael Bloomberg can write a 100 million dollar check to a super PAC and so the DNC has a very limited role, in, and we have to understand what that role is. It can be fixed, I think. And one of the suggestions I make is because the DNC is a part of the problem of Democrats being overly focused on the presidency. And one of the reasons why that is is the DNC chair serves four-year terms, and that four-year term is tied to the presidential cycle. And so every DNC chair comes in, and they says, I'm going to run a 50-state strategy, and I'm going to try to fund all of the state parties all around the country, not just... The, Michigan and Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. I'm also going to do Utah and Arkansas and Alaska. But what happens always is they say that, and then the presidential election year comes, and this is their, their and now their job is to get the president elected. And as soon as the tradition is, as soon as the Democratic nominee wins, be, officially gets the nomination, they take over the DNC. They put all their staff in there. They they control the purse strings, and so obviously, what does the presidential candidate care about? the seven states they need to win. And so like when Barack Obama ran in 2008, Howard Dean was the DNC chair. 
Howard Dean was the originator of the 50 state strategy. He ran on that. That was his goal. He, he tried to focus on it. We won the nomination. And then obviously, when we, what we cared about was winning the states we cared about. And so what I recommend is we disconnect the DNC chair from the presidential cycle and put them on six-year terms, right? And then another idea that I think would help the state parties around the country, that's really what we care about. We want to build up sustainable, progressive, democratic infrastructure all over the country so that we can begin flipping some of these states. Another idea is the DNC also, one other thing it does is it houses the voter file, which is the repository of voter information for all across the country. And local candidates get access to that for free, but presidential candidates who use it at a much higher volume in a much more sophisticated way have to pay for it. And the way they pay for it is they either write a big check to the DNC or they raise money for the DNC. Or they go speak at a giant fundraiser. And what I think we should do instead is, for if a presidential candidate wants access to the voter file, we should, the that should, access to the voter file should be contingent upon raising, adopting a state, a red state that is not going to be competitive in the presidential election and raising X amount of dollars for that, right? So they can either be, they would go to that state and do a fundraiser, they would hold a fundraiser with their donors in their state, but let's make them adopt a state. And we can also encourage Democratic donors to adopt a state, even you know either at a high level if you're a rich Democratic donor or you know, getting people to give $10 a month, right? Like we're all gonna, someone's gonna take on Arkansas and someone's gonna take on Wyoming. Because if we ever wanna win those elections, we gotta start, and it's gonna take time, we gotta start working on it right now. And what would be the way to push the, like what would be the advocacy moment to get the DNC to do those things? Would it be like citizens pushing their delegates or would it be like a national uproar to Tom? What would it be? I think it would be pushing the state party chairs to push the DNC because the, it is the 435 members uh, or f it's 400 plus members of the DNC, which includes state party chairs and then other quote-unquote DNC members, which are officials elected by the local party, to push them to push the chair or to push the rules committee to change the rules. And it, the, way, the best way this can happen, the easiest way is for a Democratic president to be elected and then and make those changes. It's much harder when you're out of office because there's no centralized force pushing for it. Now, another thing that you address in the book is about the Senate, that like we have to fundamentally change some stuff there. Let's start with Mitch. What do we do about Mitch? <laughs> <laughs> well, we can start by beating him when he's up for re-election in Kentucky this year. Is he beatable? <laughs> I mean, it is, the, it is a long shot. So I'm going to be perfectly frank. It is a long shot to beat him. But he is the most unpopular, Senate, the most unpopular senator in America, in his home state. Really? Yeah, he's very unpopular. And he doesn't ever go to Kentucky, basically. He just stays in his rich house. He got very, he's gotten very rich since he got to the Senate, which are, there's a lot of questions that the people of Kentucky should ask about that. And there's a great candidate, Amy McGrath, running, and, it's a, and a couple other primary candidates there. But if we don't beat Mitch McConnell, we have, to, we have to understand that the Senate is biased against Democrats, demographically so, where California has the same number of senators as Wyoming, Pennsylvania. It's the same number of senators of Idaho. There are more Pennsylvanians than Idahoans? I don't know. <laughs> and the demographic tr ch trends are getting much worse than that. It is now actually, today, it is actually possible for 18% of the United States population to control 51 Senate seats. And so we, we are, there is, we had 60 seats for a very brief period in Barack Obama's presidency. We, it was the only time that there has been a giant raft of the passage of progressive legislation since Lyndon Johnson was president. We are not going to have 60 Senate seats again 
anytime soon. And we're going to be barely holding on to 50 at best for a very long time. And so with passing common sense legislation like background checks depends on 8 to 10 Republicans agreeing. If saving the planet from climate change depends on 8 to 10 Republicans agreeing. If giving expanding health care depends on 8 to 10 Republicans compromising, we're in big trouble. So what I have advocate for is that, one, we get rid of the filibuster. And there is risk in that because there are times we're not going to control the Senate. Can you explain that? Some sure. people don't know what the filibuster yeah. is and they don't want to say it. So can you yeah. help us? Yes, yeah, so thank you. The filibuster is the rule that, that insists that you need 60 votes to do anything. And so we, we got rid of the filibuster for, for presidential appointments like cabinet secretaries back in 2013 because the Republicans decided that despite Barack Obama getting 51% of the vote, he shouldn't be allowed to have a labor secretary or an EPA administrator. We got rid of it because for district for all judges less than below the Supreme Court. And then when Trump got elected, they got rid of it for the Supreme Court so that they could, they could finalize the theft of the Merrick Garland seat. But it still exists for legislation. And I think if the Democrats should get rid of it, make it 50 votes, there will be times in which Republicans will have power and they will use it against us. But I would much rather be in a world where Republicans will be judged on the things they do as opposed to Democrats being judged on the things they can't get done because of Republican obstruction. The second thing I think Democrats should do immediately after getting rid of the filibuster is they should make D.C. a state. And it is 100% the right thing to do. I think if the people of Puerto Rico choose that they would like to be a state and that it should be up to them, we should immediately make Puerto Rico a state because it is insane that if you... You're, if you Puerto Ricans are American citizens, they cannot vote for president. If you're a Puerto Rican who moves to F Florida, for instance, and you establish residency there by living there for like three weeks, you can vote for you can vote in the presidential election. So that makes no sense. And so, like, if we don't, we just have to be very clear that it doesn't matter what what our policies are, what anything is, is that as long as the Senate stays the way it is, conservatives will control the policy agenda in America for decades to come. And the other big bucket of changes that you talk about are around voting. And one thing that I didn't anticipate you would advocate for would be mandatory voting. Yeah. Can you talk about that? So I, I throw some idea. I have I talk a lot about the, the sort of more commonly accepted ideas around automatic voter registration, same day registration, that giving uh, just that having making voting as easy as possible for eligible voters and being as um, open and expansive in the idea of what an eligible voter is. But they're in Australia. I've been really struck by, I read about Australia, which has m compulsory voting. And so you, they, therefore they have, you, you, you have to vote, and if you do not vote, you pay a small fine. And they end up with 95% turnout in every election. And if you talk to people in Australia, they love it. It is, they have parties on voting day. Voting's a holiday, obviously, because you're required to do it. <laughs> they have uh, party, they, everyone votes, and then they go to these voting parties afterwards, and it, you should see the YouTube videos of it. It is wild. <laughs> and it, when you think about it, it's like you're required to pay taxes as a price of citizenship, right? You, you're required to send your kids to some sort of education um, growing up. Like, why shouldn't voting be a requirement of being a citizen in this country? In, the, the thing that would be important is you, that none of the above should be an option, right? Like, if you, you shouldn't be required to pick between the two parties if you don't want to. If you want to say no one, you should do it. But I just think 
ultimately, and all of the ideas in this book are based around this concept that only 60% of Americans participate in our political process. And think how different, so we always talk about unity, right? Like how can we possibly unify the country? But when we have that conversation and people are like, you're naive, you can't unify this country, we're really only talking about the 60% who participate in the process, right? And they're like, you know, of that 60%, 25% of them are dyed in the wool, uh, Republicans, 25% are dying the Democrats, there's this few people in the middle. We never talk about the 40% who don't participate in the process. And that would be truly unifying the country. And that would change the politics in this country dramatically if we had, if everyone felt a stake in what we were doing. It would, and so that, that's why I float the idea of compulsory voting. I don't think it's gonna happen anytime soon. I also, I think the Democrats should be willing to push for big, bold ideas that, will, that may not happen anytime in the near future if only to shift the, the window of acceptable topic conversations further in our direction. Much, and it, I, like I've taken a lot of lessons from how Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have moved the policy conversation in the Democratic Party to the left by pushing for things like Medicare for All. If we push for big, bold ideas on democratic reform, we can move the conversation into the more aggressive and more democratic small d. And in that vein, there's some people who say that they push it too far, that the country's not ready to be that progressive, that like they aren't electable in some way. What do you think about that notion that like we should either be converting uh, Trump voters, that we should be sort of going down the middle to get swing voters, that this too bold is actually like scaring people away quietly? I think that very clear that I think every single person who was on that debate stage on Wednesday night can be Trump. Even Bloomberg? Yeah, he can be Trump. Yeah, I think he absolutely can. He may not be my first choice or others, but he, but look, I'll be very, like, the, the voters are going to pick a nominee three days from now, three weeks from now, the third night of the convention. It'll eventually happen. <laughs> and, and we will, the best way to beat Trump is to be unified behind that person. It may not be our first choice, may not be our second choice, may be our fifth choice. But whoever you think is the weakest of that, of those candidates up there, that the weakest, quote unquote, weakest candidate with a unified Democratic Party has a better chance of beating Trump than the strongest candidate with a divided Democratic Party. So we all got to get behind that person. But I think, like, I do think this debate about do we try to persuade swing voters or get base voters is a false choice because of the Electoral College. If we had a national, which I also advocate getting rid of, but if we had a national election, there are more than enough Democratic base voters to win the popular vote by a lot, as we saw in 2016. Unfortunately, those Democratic-based voters are not evenly distributed geographically. And so if we're going to get to 270, we're going to have to have a combination of the two. Now, what I do believe, and I think Democrats have to remember, is one, it's possible because Barack Obama did it twice, and he did it pretty easily. I mean, he won Wisconsin by seven points. He won Pennsylvania by a decent amount, Michigan by a decent amount, won Iowa, won Ohio. Like, you can do it. And the way to think about it is the same message can work for both. And we, like, we have this view in our mind that every swing voter we get like, repels one base voter or vice versa. And that's just that's simply not how people work. And your policy is only as good as how it fits into your message and your story. And if you can explain why this big, bold policy works, then you can win. If you can't, you're going to lose. As we come to the end, uh, 
is there a role for HRC in this election cycle to help get out people to vote? Like, do you think there's a, a role for her in this? Oh, uh, 100%. I think so. I mean, she did get 3 million more votes than uh, the last person. So, <laughs> so yeah, I think, I, I hope whoever the nominee is welcomes her on stage at the convention and welcomes her out there campaigning. And I'm, I, I don't have inside, inside information or even a good sense of what she's planning to do, but I would be surprised if she was not willing to, not willing to get out there as much as humanly possible and make sure that Donald Trump gets defeated. I think she probably doesn't have the warmest feelings towards him, I'm guessing, so <laughs> she may want to see him lose. And I heard a rumor that you might run for office. Is that true? You, you asked me this question backstage, and I told you no. <laughs> that's <laughs> not what you said backstage. I'll tell you, you, you what say? I said backstage. Okay. I said I could possibly one day, many years from now, see myself running for school board. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. But being so involved, has it not, you know, you've worked on a million campaigns, you've been deep at every level, has it, what's the hesitation about running I for, <laughs> for things other than school board? <laughs> school board's good though. If any school board members are here, we love you. I, I don't know, if it is, I've, I've always sort of seen myself as the person standing behind the person running for office. That's always sort of what I've done. And, and, and like, I think the, I guess, this is the way I would describe it. I... I think I would not be good at it, running for office. And I once asked uh, Obama towards the, when I was getting ready to leave the White House in 2015, if he would, like if the Constitution allowed it, would he ever serve a third term? Like would be interested in doing that? And he, he said uh, the Constitution was not the issue. Um, the First Lady might be the issue with that. <laughs> but he said he, he, if he could like go to Hawaii, but be beamed into like the policy meetings where that like, and what he meant by that was like the work was interesting, right? Like the part he said he was gonna miss was working with really smart, really smart good people on really tough problems. Like that part is very interesting to me. I think the other part, the, you know, the raising money, the, all the other stuff I think would not be firmly well within my skill set. so. Is that the part you miss the most about the White House? I miss the people. Like that is the thing that, uh, like, it, I worked on. I went to work on that campaign in 2008. The people I worked with became my friends and family, and you really build these bonds in there. And so, like, I miss, I miss going in that building. Like that was um, a huge honor every single day. I miss working for someone who I never once doubted my decision to work for. Who never once in 10 years gave me a reason to question giving up a large portion of my life for them, who I thought was always doing the right thing. And so I do miss, wor I do miss working with people, really super smart people who care passionately about what they're doing on like really where it, it feels like it really matters. Like that part of it, you, I, do, I, I do miss that part. Like there's a, the getting up at four in the morning and getting to the office or like leaving every movie or dinner date with your wife because of a conference call or a world disaster. That part I don't miss. <laughs> Sleep is enjoyable. Um, seeing an entire movie in a theater without having to get up to take a call is very enjoyable, but those are the parts I miss. Cool. Let's give it up for Dan, everybody. We are going to transition to uh, our audience Q&A portion of the event. Uh, please understand there's one of me, there's a lot of you. So we're going to start over in this area with questions. If you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll come to you with the mic. 
Hi, thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, my name is Tara Shakespeare. I live just across the sh uh, river in uh, the West Shore. And I'm wondering what your suggestions are for our local state house uh, and state senate and how to flip those. I mean, I think the recipe is exactly the recipe that has been working across the country since 2018, which is run someone for every office, no matter how Republican it seems. That is like, there are people in Virginia where we took the state senate and then the state house in 17 and 19. That was entirely because we had people running for office where there had been no Democratic opponent in decades. And, they, and in a state legislative race, you can buck the political trends through organizing, right? And so um, it would be run, something, run someone for everything, organize everywhere. Hi. Um, my name's Corey. Uh, as an older millennial, um, when I heard on the recent Pod Save episode, your comments on um, socialism and Bernie's definition of it. Um, my entire childhood was spent with Republicans saying the word socialism is an automatic I win button, and it's why we can't have nice things. So <laughs> I was just wondering what your opinion is on how to move the Overton window and take that I win button away. Well, it, it's not been in a super effective I win button because they called Barack Obama socialists all the time and he, he won. So, um, but like it, 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 there are sort of two ways to think about socialism, the, the label of socialism in the 2020 election, which is it doesn't matter if the nominee is Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, the Republicans will call them socialists, right? That will happen. I think it is a particular political challenge for Bernie Sanders because he also calls himself a democratic socialist. And so <laughs> the ability to push back is harder, right? And I think, so as I said earlier, I think 100% Bernie Sanders can win. How he navigates that question will determine whether he can win because it is, it is sitting out there and polls are very clear that as of right now, people, if you had like the least appealing characteristic that they are willing to accept in a president is socialism. Yeah, and this is what I think is very important is like 70 some percent of voters don't want a socialist, but Bernie Sanders is getting, you know, 48, 49% in some of these head-to-head matchups with Trump. So how do you square that, right? The one part, and this is the worrisome part, is that 40% um, of voters don't know that Bernie Sanders identifies as a socialist. So that's part of why that is. But the other part is that people know Bernie Sanders. The people that know Bernie Sanders are not alarmed by it. Right, and so I think the message I would have is it's less about that term because they're going to use that term no matter what the views are, no matter whether it is if you, like a candidate who ran on reducing the ACA would also be called a socialist, let alone someone who called who ran on Medicare for all. Is that presidential politics are not about ideology and policy; they are about identity and personality, and the what they're going to try to use. Socialism, not to make Bernie Sanders um, seem too liberal, they're going to make him try to make Bernie Sanders seem scary. And I think the best way to fight back on that is not to spend all of your time debating what the word social means, but to for Bernie Sanders to tell the story about who he is. Right? He is a great American story, and is someone who, if, if he can tell the story about someone who grew up in Brooklyn, lived this life, and then spent a half a century fighting for working class people as a public servant. 
who was so committed to that that he remained independent from the two America's two political parties. I think it's a very compelling story. And so he's got to focus on telling his story to the, to, the Amer- to the voters who don't know him yet and haven't paid any attention to politics. And if he does that, he does that well, I think we have a chance to navigate that, what I think will be that, that particular challenge for his campaign. Hi, Andrea, friend of the pod. Thanks for coming Thank to Harrisburg. You. So it's a funny thing to live in the middle of a swing state, smack dab in the middle of it. And I think I speak for many of us in this room when I say I have coworkers, family, friends who are not just Republicans, but fierce Trump supporters. You know, we see the signs everywhere around here. And, you know, even just as you were talking about social media, I was wondering in my, I haven't read the book yet. Obviously, it just came out. Um, But what are a few practical things, aside from the obvious, like volunteering, donating, that, you know, you might suggest to those of us who have a lot of Trump supporters around us, you know, every day? Like, should I be on Facebook in that, you know, town square, you know, and refriend some of my uncles? (laughs) You know, like, what are some of those things that you would suggest? Like, if you lived here and you were, you know, very immersed in this world, what would you be doing, aside from the obvious? I would say in this version, it is always the uncle. It is always the uncle is the Trump supporter. Um, so I'd say two things. I think it is good to be on social media platforms, and I think it is, it'll be very important for progressives to share content on social media platforms to their networks. And whether that could be positive about our nominee, it could be a, a news story that explains the impact of Trump's policies. Like, there is a, if you lived uh, in Wisconsin, there's a story out today about this dramatic increase in farm bankruptcies. Like, no one is going to know that if people do not share that with people in their networks, right? And it will have more credibility coming from someone they know, because they may be very skeptical of the fake news. But the other thing I would recommend is, this is a question we get all the time, which is like, how do I deal with my Trump uncle, or my Trump dad, or whoever, right? And it's usually said in the context of like a holiday, like how am I going to get through that? And... The advice I always try to give is don't worry about trying to convince your Trump uncle to stop being Trump. Um, Just go find two of your friends who are not registered to vote, register them and get them to vote, and cancel out your uncle's vote. Hi there, uh, Elizabeth Salcedo Sorsopian. I'm from uh, Lancaster, PA. I'm a friend of the pod and a friend of Pod Save the People. Um, I, you mentioned that, uh, of course, the right wing has a lot of, um, they're, they're very good at organizing their base through their news media. Are there any particular, um, are there any particular outlets out there aside from, of course, crooked media and even the obvious, um, even the obvious news media outlets that you see that are doing a particularly good job of organizing the, organizing the left, um, the progressives? Yeah, I think there's a very vibrant, um, very left uh, set of media organizations. I think The Intercept uh, is a very powerful organization and does a lot of really important work. You know, the American Prospect uh, and the Nation are also very important. And they have begun to move towards um, uh, donation-based journalism, right? They're one of the things that I think is interesting, it hasn't, I don't know that it's come to Pennsylvania yet, but there are a progressive network of local news sites that are be, that are coming up. I think they're primarily in uh, Michigan, Virginia, and Michigan right now. I think when those come, that'll be a very important thing because we have this huge hole in our civic life, which is local newspapers are being gutted to basically nothing. In some cases, just closing. 
And that's not a solvable problem in the short term because no one has a good idea on how to keep them. They're not, it's just not a profitable business anymore. But like that, that leaves a giant gap in our civic life. And I think filling it, and Republicans are already filling them. They've put 15 pseudo local news sites up in Michigan that are pushing Republican propaganda, and you would have no idea based on the title. It's like, the, like if, the, if the local newspaper was like the Daily Star, this is like the Daily Planet, right? It's, it's like you think it's related, but it's not. And we're going to have to have some infrastructure that pushes back on that, but does it with facts and truth and like nice concepts like that. My name's Beth. Um, I was curious about uh, the digital media and if you could talk a little more about um, how important you think that'll be in this upcoming election and also kind of what you think the candidate um, can do through social media that would be effective. Um, so, yeah. I, I go into this in some detail in the book, but I'll give you the shorter version here, which is I think we have to go from a communication strategy to a content strategy. And that content strategy has to be completely holistic. And so, like a New York Times article that lays out, let's say, Trump's farm bankruptcy problem, right? Like that, the strategy begins when that story appears. So the question is, how do we solve like a last mile problem? How do we get that story in front of the voters we care about? That could be digital advertising, you know, paying to put it in people's Facebook feeds or through Google Ads or something else. It can be asking people like you guys, like mo campaigns mobilizing their supporters to share it with their networks. And that can actually get to a pretty sophisticated level where you're in Wisconsin, you know, you, we know who, you know, you know who your friends are, you know whichever your friends are persuadable, you know who to, who to show it to. It can be, um, you know, you can do it through the candidate, you know, just the campaign posting on Facebook themselves or Instagram or Twitter. But it, it has to all be a, a, a just a constant, never-ending content strategy, right? Where all you care about is how, and there's someone whose job it is on the campaign, instead of a communications director, we have like a chief content officer whose job it is to ensure that the information the candidate campaign cares about gets in front of the voters. We know need to see that information. And that, that has to continue, not just in the campaign, that has to continue in the White House. I think, in argue in the book, the campaign should not shut down. The next president, Democratic president, should be running digital ads all the time because if they turn off their messaging operation when they get into the White House, they're going to lose the ability to communicate and they're going to get swamped. And so, you know, you like on the State of the Union, you're going to send, you're going to use advertisements to get people to watch the State of the Union. You're going to take pieces of the State of the Union and you will show them to people that you care about through digital advertising or other content afterwards. You're going to, you know, so we just have to have a very aggressive strategy understands that the media is an important part of our strategy, but it's not the only part. Uh, hi, my name is Noah. Um, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, my question, at the end of the debate on, what was that, Monday or Tuesday, whenever it was, um, they kind of... This is how time moves. That was Wednesday. Okay, that, that was, was two Monday, days yeah. ago. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long week, even though it's been a holiday weekend, uh, but... My question at the end of the debate, um, they went around and asked everybody about the co uh, contested convention pretty much, you know, asking if you would accept the plurality of voters. Um, I see that as like a pretty big problem going into it with the superdelegates and how much money Bloomberg and how much clout he has. Do you think that's going to be a huge problem, especially looking at uh, people like Bernie Sanders, who has probably the most ardent supporters out of the group? 
I I wasn't surprised to see that answer, but that's because every one of those candidates right now knows that Bernie Sanders has the most will have the most delegates in a in a few days. I so in two thousand and eight, we when Barack Obama was running against Hillary Clinton, we had uh, this challenge where Obama was the leader in delegates. And so you have two kinds of delegates. You have the delegates you get just from doing well in a state, and then there are these super delegates who are local officials who can pick anyone they want. And Obama w had a very big, a very a sustainable lead where Hillary Clinton cannot catch up on pledge delegates. Hillary Clinton's campaign tried to do two things. They tried to get super delegates, these politicians, to move over to her side to take the nomination from Obama. Then they also tried, Michigan and, Pencil and Florida were in timeout that election because they moved their primaries too close to uh, New Hampshire. So their delegates did not count, and Obama didn't run in those states. And so then the Clinton campaign tried to seat those delegates, which the DNC stopped them from doing. It was the position of Barack Obama and his staff, I have on record all over the place saying it in 2008, that whoever had the most delegates, even if it wasn't the majority, should be the nominee. Hillary Clinton in 2016 was in a similar delegate position as Obama. She had the position, a different position, that the person who had the most delegates, who had a polarity of delegates, should do it. Bernie Sanders thought the superdelegates should uh, vote with who won the state, which would have given Bernie Sanders the nomination. And now Bernie Sanders, because he's the leader of pledge delegates, thinks pledge delegates, the person with pledge delegates should do it. I find it hard to believe that the party, that the, delega the convention delegates will take the nomination away from the person with the most delegates. Like, I, I would be... I'm not, I don't make predictions, as so people about Save America know, but I think that would be a disastrous political decision. The rules certainly say, the rules are very clear, if you don't have a majority, it goes to a second ballot, and people can vote as they choose. I think it would just be, whether it's Bernie Sanders, or Joe Biden, or Elizabeth Warren, whoever else who has, who is the, has a delegate lead going into the convention, to take that away from that person would be to not just hand the presidency to Trump, would be to permanently fracture the party. So... I think it would be a very bad idea. I hope, I think a lot of people agree with me. And so I wouldn't worry too much about this yet because people just have to say this because they need an excuse to keep their campaign going if they're not yet in the lead. But we, need, we should keep an eye on it. Hi, I'm Cap uh, Breitmeyer, and I'm a state government employee here in Harrisburg. Shout out to the many state employees I see in the audience. Um, <laughs> um, I've worked in, uh, in the legislature, at a state agency, and in the governor's office. I don't know that the judiciary has this problem, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, but pretty much every facet of state government, we constantly get phone calls from constituents who are talking about how you know, they really have a problem with one of Trump's policies, or they really like it, or that they really want their, their uh, federal senator to vote on a certain thing. And it's like, well, maybe you should call your federal senator and not your state senator because we can't help you. Also, the Department of Insurance can't help you with that either. Um, but I guess my question is, if you have any advice for how, especially in this period where we're really having a strong competition for media attention because everything is focused on the presidential, um, how we can get the message through that our state government and our local governments have a tremendous impact on the day-to-day -day for people and how we can convince people to be greater participants in that process and how that will then help 
the national conversation be elevated as a result. I think that that is a responsibility for all of us with a platform in politics, whether you're a presidential candidate running who should be drawing attention to that to state and local. It is you know people on podcasts need to do it, um, and we did like we have like in. And we've seen real impact in getting people to, to be involved in the process. The turnout in off-year elections has been incredibly high. We've had people running for local office. And so we have to continue to do that. How we convince people that there's a difference between the state government and the federal government, that is a real challenge. <laughs> people were so mad at Barack Obama for raising their taxes in 2010. Barack Obama didn't raise their taxes. Their states did. But it was very hard to convince them otherwise. Um, that seems to me to be a uh, fundamental civic education problem that we we're going to have to work on. Hi, I'm Brian from Elizabethtown. Thanks for being with us tonight. Do you think that reinstatement of the FCC fairness rule would be feasible? And if so, would it do any good to alter the media landscape in which we find ourselves? This is some, when I was writing the book, I wanted to explore this topic. And because I, I think one of the huge problems for progressivism in this country is the media imbalance, that despite a lot of liberals in charge of media outlets, the conversation is, is um, tilted towards conservatives and towards Trump in particular. Um, in my research on this, and I am not an attorney, I eventually, the answer to your question was so confusing and so not under, like no one seemed to know the real answer to it that I, I didn't want to explore. I, I couldn't find a way to draw a conclusion from it. A real question, like there is a question about whether we have gone too far from past where we were, where you would lose a whole bunch of stuff that we're trying to build on the progressive side as well. And so I want to I learn more about this. I think there are some specific regulatory things we can do if we get in control of the FCC again around corporate consolidation of media, you know, dealing with the problem we have with Sinclair, which is a, broadcast, a conservative broadcast company buying up local television stations. And so I just don't know the answer to whether the Fairness Doctrine can put the genie back in the bottle yet, but I want to explore it more. Um, thank you for being here. I'm a precinct captain for our county Democrats and, thank you. and a member of our township Democratic Club. Last election, we came within four percentage points of flipping our township blue, except for three precincts and we have tried we've exhausted ourselves trying to figure out how to get these three precincts to turn out and I was just wondering if you had any ideas that you could share they're filled with my township is actually pretty wealthy it's um, Hampton Township and um, people are very engaged politically but we have three areas where it's mostly young professionals it's apartments um, and those three precincts are what's keeping us from flipping blue and just wondering if you had any ideas of how we could move that needle. I mean, without knowing a lot more about those precincts, it'd be hard to give very specific advice, but I think it's sort of nonstop organizing, right? Which is, you know, constantly be making, having a presence there, maybe finding ways to, like, not just knock doors, but host a gathering where you can maybe get people to come, right? A, like, I've seen, I've seen local parties do really clever things with, like, street festi sponsoring street festivals and things like that, where you, like, where you can get people to come, so it's not just a political event, it's all, there's also music, or games for kids, or things like that that would get people involved. Because you just need to have that, you know, be able to sort of break through for that first interaction and build some, some idea of community within that group. Um, so I think, there, like, if you look at some of the stuff that 
swing left has done, uh, particularly in Virginia, um, in the run up to that election and some stuff that they did in Orange County, California, there are some really interesting ideas there on building, uh, on sort of breaking through in non-traditional ways. Hi, my name is Gina. Um, Trump and Ivanka have done their childcare tax credit thing. Um, <laughs> So you're not a fan, you're saying? Not a fan, not not what I think the solution to the problem is, but, um, and I couldn't watch the whole debate on whatever day it was because it makes my brain explode, um, but I only heard universal childcare, childcare at all mentioned really once by Elizabeth Warren. Why is access, broader access to childcare, whether it's universal, high quality, whatever, why is that something that Democrats are so hesitant and reluctant, it seems to me, to talk about on you know, a national scale? I mean, every one of them has a plan of some sort. There was a plan in the Senate that Kirsten Gillibrand put forward back when Barack Obama was president that had the support of most Democrats. I don't have a good answer for, I think on the debate stage, you're sort of somewhat dictated by the questions. And there was one debate, like three or four debates, where they actually had a pretty good conversation about this, because. The questioners, were the, the moderators were interested in it. But it is sort of insane not to talk about it more because it is a, the, the numbers on it in polling are incredibly high. And we, we have been, as important as the healthcare conversation is, it is sort of blotted out the sun on a bunch of very other important issues. And I do think it would be an important part. It's, these, the, I think one of the reasons why we're not talking about it a lot is there's probably little to no difference between the positions of the various Democrats on there. But once you're contrasting with Trump and why the Ivanka plan you seem to not love um, doesn't work as well, I think. So I would hope to see it more in the general election. Hi, thank you so much for both being here. Um, I'm a librarian at a local community college. And so, thank you. And so I just want to give a shout out. I, I read Timothy Snyder's book on tyranny, and one of the institutions I'm really supporting are, are authors, libraries, books. Um, so I thank you both for being here. Uh, I work where Trump holds his rallies, right over at the Farm Show Arena and also in Hershey. And I was one of about 100 protesters that went to the Hershey, the most recent one. And I just wanted to share this. It was probably, thank you. It was one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Um, so one of the things, and I'm just doing this as a shout out, because I went back to work and had a couple of my coworkers who articulated a need to do something, and I told them if you're a caregiver, if you're a single parent, if you're responsible for anyone, don't go to one of these rallies, because I really felt like something could have happened. So I'm just giving that as a shout out. But um, my question is, I'm gonna segue into your pod because you've saved my sanity. Thank you so Thank much. You. And both of you, both of you, I, I listen to you on my way to work, and my husband's here with me, he'll attest, I'm like, I listened to the pod today, I listened to the pod. So I'm wondering, what do you see coming down the pike? Because it's just gonna get a little more intense and a little more rapid, and every day I kind of challenge myself as to what I can do. Do you plan each pod, or d are, are you gonna be more proactive and less reactive, or? That's what I'm asking, is what do you see coming down the pike for actually both of your pods? You wanna start? So we don't really talk about Trump that much. They, we reserve Trump for Pod Save America. <laughs> so he, <laughs> they sort of own the Trump conversation. Yeah. Uh, we cover four pieces of news that you don't know every, that you don't know that happened in the week, um, which is interesting. 
and fun. I think that the que- I agree with Dan is that like I think we can win. The question is, can we organize? Right, like that will be the test. Is like, can we actually organize? Can we tell a story that motivates people? Can we give people? You know, it's not it's not just about beating Trump. It's about having a vision of America that's bigger than him. And like, can we offer that? I don't know. Like, I'm interested. I think some of the candidates have figured it out a little bit better than not. Uh, I, I might support somebody next week, so we'll see if I become a surrogate or something. I try to get Dan to do it. He's like, no, Dre. Uh, so, so we will see. I'm interested, you know, around issues of race and justice, most people are, Bloomberg notwithstanding, most people are sort of in a good place. Biden a little shaky, but like, you know, most people are in a good place. So I'm interested in that. And, you know, what Dan talks about in the book, because I'm here to plug the book, uh, it is a reminder that uh, they're only, I think you know, it's like 40% of the Democrat, only the Democratic base is only 40% white. Yeah. So, like, it's majority black and brown, you know? And I am, but you wouldn't know that if you watch TV. You wouldn't know that if you, like, look at the way we cover the news and things like that. So, I'm interested in, like, what's going to get my aunt to vote, right? And I don't know if anybody's talking to Aunt Mink right now. I think that they are leaving Aunt Mink at home. So, like, that is what stresses me out a little bit, is that, like, the people that listen to our pods are going to, they're going to come, they're going to vote. They, my aunt is raising her two kids and going to work. Like, she is just not. So when I think about what I'm excited to do is try and figure out how we get that 60% that's the non-white community to believe, because what the Republicans have done that's really well, that Dan also talks about in the book, is that they have used you, fear. You know, I love you. I love you, Dan. <laughs> they have used fear to make people believe that like the process just doesn't matter, right? Or like they've never won before. Or like I, I was a protester. I voted my whole life. Got dragged out of police department by my ankles. My phone got hacked. The first person ever permanently banned from Twitter was banned for raising money to try and get me killed. And it wasn't because I didn't vote. I voted, right? And there are a lot of people who we have told that voting is like the end all be all and like it di- it wasn't for them. So can we help them understand voting as like a tool in the toolkit and the only way to build the house is with all the tools. So John, John and Tommy and I have been having an ongoing conversation about like what's the most constructive thing we can do in this campaign. And I think you know, and you see us straining to do it, and sometimes it's awkward, is we've tried to be as neutral as possible in this primary and try to be honest when we think candidates do the right thing and honest when candidates do the wrong thing, but not try to put our thumb on the scale. And I think sometimes we have done a good job of that, and other times we, you know, the f- supporters of candidates who think we've fallen short on that, let us know. <laughs> and we want to, and one of the reasons why we want to do that, well, there's two reasons. One is that we're the typical Democratic voters. We also can't figure out who's the best person to beat Trump, so we can't make a decision. But also, we want to be able to help convince people to get behind the nominee, whoever it is. And that, like, like the conversation around Obama, with our much smaller platform and less influence, we can play a role in that. And the second thing is we want to we get people to get involved, right? We want to help. That's what the Vote Save America website is about. How can we get them to volunteer, knock doors, make phone calls, whatever, whatever it is they can do to make a difference. And then we also want to highlight it's not going to be hard to get people to focus on the presidential race, but how can we help remind people that we have to take the Senate? Right. So what can we do to direct our listeners in Colorado and North Carolina and uh, Arizona and Iowa and all the other Georgia and all the other states with Senate, ra- Maine, with Senate races to get involved there? And we're also going to think about what we can do around some of the down-ballot races. We can draw attention to interesting candidates. Like there is a very, on last week's, yesterday's pod, um, interview with Jessica Cisneros, who is challenging. She's a very progressive, very impressive candidate supported by AOC and others who is running 
um, against a very conservative Democrat in Texas in the primary. So we, if we can draw attention to people and expose them to our network of listeners and get them an opportunity to make a case, make their case for support, volunteers, et cetera, we will, we will do that. But our main, go our main goal is to do everything we can to channel the anger and angst, mostly angst. Our listeners are joyous but nervous uh, <laughs> to channel, the, channel, channel their angst into um, activism in this election. Hi, so this goes back to what was mentioned earlier about um, civic education. Um, I'm a government teacher in a high school nearby here, and uh, I, was just <laughs> um, I was just wondering if uh, there's anything over kind of the course of your career where you have kind of thought like, man, I wish that people would have just learned this in high school. Like, is there anything that you uh, would recommend, you know, me focus on as, as, as a government teacher? That is a great question. <laughs> um, I, I think it is, it would really be explaining that even though we treat the president like a king and hopefully a queen one day, that that's not where political power is in this, in this country and that it, is, that it is both at the state level and at the congressional level because we, we mythologize our presidents, right? That they are they're these, to date, great men of history who can by saying the right thing or having a drink with the right center can get things done. That's not how the system works, right? And I think that uh, helping people understand that progress can happen, but it takes work and it can be slow is uh, an important thing to understand that you have to do the work to get it done. And that ultimately it is uh, on you. Like I think people, I think I, this is the way I would think I would say it is giving, helping students understand that they have agency in this process, right? That they. If you if you want it, if there's something you care about, you want to get it done, you gotta do you gotta participate to do it, right? The, and making them feel like they're a part of it, I think, is really important. Before we take another one down here, uh, David might have a question on the balcony or our history yep. floor. I see a couple. We had one hand over here first. Hold on, gotta get in there. Thank you so much. My name's Andrew. I'm the campaign manager, actually, for Tom Breyer, trying to beat Scott Perry and flip this oh, district blue. Awesome. My question for you, Dan, was do you have any thoughts on Rachel Bitkofer's negative partisanship theory of elections in the Trump era? And then also, do you think it explains any dysfunction with the 76ers this year? I find Rachel, who I've never met, but I follow her on Twitter and I read a lot of her writings, to be a very interesting, um, have a lot of interesting thoughts on these things, and I find her to be an interesting follow who offers a different perspective since most of our views on political data come from white guys named Nate, and so I appreciate, I appreciate the diversity there. I, I think that as I understand her theory, that it essentially it almost doesn't matter who the candidate is and it's all about turnout, basically based turnout. I think that there is a lot of truth to that in a national election. I think the hard part is, and I wanna, I wanna dig more into her data, but is how you make that work in a state like Wisconsin, right? Where you have two challenges, which is it is a very white state and also has very aggressive voter suppression laws because the important thing to remember in Wisconsin, like, it, like if all things be equal where we made it easy for everyone to vote, 
and that's just hard for a certain set of group of people to vote. Like I think that theory could be very very uh, prophetic. Um, the, the stat I always want people to take away when they think about voter suppression is that Barack Obama won, beat Mitt Romney by seven points in Wisconsin. Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton by less than a percent, but he got less votes than Mitt Romney did, which means that they were able to stop that many Democrats from turning out. Now, some of them we did not persuade to turn out, but others were stopped from voter ID and other things. And so I want to look more at Rachel's theory about that. I do not think uh, the theory of negative partisanship, partisanship explains uh, the problems with the 76ers this year. <laughs> Problem with the 76ers, as far as I can tell, is that it's very important to have people who can dribble and shoot on the court <laughs> at the same time. And we have a dearth of those at most of the times. We have time for just two more questions. Uh, in 2018, we saw the voters of Maine elect their first member of Congress through ranked choice voting. Uh, you might talk about this in the book, but I was just want to know your thoughts on that and whether or not you think that's something the rest of the country should uh, follow suit with. I, I'm very interested in the idea of ranked choice voting. I, I was in Iowa during the caucus, and this I, last caucus, just like two weeks ago. Yeah, I was there, and uh, <laughs> and it was funny because I, like I, I sort of came to the conclusion. And I almost include this in the book, but then decided not to. The idea that we should just get rid of caucuses because, like, the, if, the if I want the Democrats to be the democracy party, you can't really be the democracy party if you use anti-democratic methods like caucuses to pick your president. Um, not to mention, you should probably pick states that are more diverse in Iowa. But I w we like went to this caucus site, me, John, John, and Tommy. And obviously, I spent a lot of time in Iowa with Barack Obama. Barack Obama's not president with Iowa. I have a lot of affection for for Iowa caucus. And our site was perfectly run. Like, the, the guy who ran our site should be the governor of Iowa. He was so good. <laughs> they were doing the math right. And all the supporters were so great. Like, the Bernie people are politely asking the Biden people who didn't reach viability to come over. And the Warren people. And, and I was just like, you know, this is a great, like, this is actually, like, cool and nice. And then by the time we got back to Des Moines, the world slash app had collapsed. And so the next morning, I got up and I was like, we got to fix this. So I, I just wrote an op-ed on it. And one of the things that I, I recommend that Democrats do, in the primary process at least, is adopt ranked choice voting. And the reason, one of the things that makes Iowa nice is that because being someone's second choice matters, the campaign is more positive there, right? Like, you don't want to attack someone because you, you think you may need some of their voters if they can't reach that 15% threshold. If we adopt ranked choice voting, you could get so the, that benefits of forcing you to appeal to the supporters of other Democratic, of other primary candidates without the crazy idea of making people stand in a high school gym for two hours and then count themselves with an abacus. Um, <laughs> so I, like, I think it's interesting. I need to look, try to understand more about how it would work nationally and uh, perhaps who that might benefit, but I, I think it's a very interesting idea, and I would think it'd be a great idea to do in the primary. And after this election, I want to—I hope to try to re volunteer myself to help think about how, we, with it, to help the Democrats think about how to redo the process. And that would be one idea I'd push. So sorry to say, this is going to have to be our last question. Hi, my name is Emily. Um, I work in the state legislature here, but I'm from Reading, Pennsylvania originally. Um, there was just a study uh, done by NPR, and they spoke about how. Voters in Reading are not 
focused on voting because they have so many other social issues that they don't have housing or ad education and they have a lot of other barriers to voting, so they're not inspired. So I was wondering if there's anything that we can do now to build up ways to engage those voters, but also more social justice structures to help them in the future. And also with the, if there's a way to inspire them, but also if candidates can inspire them. And also, since it's the last question, I'm gonna ask about term limits too. So <laughs> if you believe in term limits and if you think that will inspire voters as well, because it will inspire them to perhaps trust candidates who they sometimes view, or legislators who they sometimes view as just entrenched in the process and that also is uninspiring to them and also prevents voting. Do you have thoughts on the first part of the question, Joy, about inspiring people? Yeah, I think that, you know, this is one of the, uh, we had two meetings with Obama in the White House. I didn't meet you in the White House, did I? Uh, I no, I, you did. I was less notable. I don't think yeah. I met you in the White House. That's not true. I did not meet you. You know, Obama did do these, um, it, but Dan wasn't in my meeting. They did these, like, uh, middle of the night meetings off the record before the State of the Union with the speechwriters. And, like, I was at, like, a 7 p.m. meeting about, like, words we wanted Obama to use in the State of the Union. But I don't think I met you in the White House. But either way, one of the fights I have, there, there are two battles. You were we very have. famous. I knew who you oh were. Oh, my God. We had two <laughs> battles with Obama. The first was he called the protesters thugs. And I remember I stood up. I'm like, Obama, you can't call people thugs. And he was like, Deray, you said things on TV you shouldn't say. Because I just said the police were engaged in genocide. And he, like, the White House flipped out about it. Um, <laughs> and... I was like, yeah, but I'm not the president. He was like, you're right. I was like, I know. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, but the second one was about like vote. He always taught, he still, so Dan, this is a plug to get your guy. He's, I got to. Is this, um, he would be like, vote, if you care about the country, you vote, right? You care about the country, you vote. There are a lot of people who have voted forever and like the world just didn't change in the way they want. So I do think this idea of like voting as a tool in the toolkit the only way to build the house is with the whole toolkit. I think that like works for a lot of people who like are tired of being shamed into voting or shamed into participating because they participated for a long time and it literally just didn't change for them. So I think that's one. The second thing is that I do think that, and I think this is where Warren does it a little bit better. I think Bernie opened up the space for it though and kudos to him, is that I think we should talk about, and AOC does it well, we should talk about the things we deserve really plainly. So like, it is not like a radical idea that everybody has breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's not like radical, right? It's not like radical that everybody should have a home. Like it, and we shouldn't cede to terms like socialism or things like that that might be off-putting for things that are like, this should be simple, right? That everybody can read and write is like a simple notion and we should talk about it really simply and not feed into the hysteria that the right wants. And Dan in the book uh -huh, talks about, um, <laughs> talks about this idea that like when you get people afraid they'll concede to anything and I think that we sometimes participate in the fear equation by mistake and I think part of this you know we talk about the difference between accountability and justice people confuse the terms but accountability is what happens after the trauma justice is the idea that people don't experience a trauma in the first place right so part of what we have to do is tell a story about a world where the trauma isn't present so healthcare, we should, it's normal that everybody has a doctor. That's like a, we should stop yelling about that as like some radical thing. It's like we should normalize that as like, a, and I believe that people will come along. And the third thing, and this is why I challenged Dan about the hope thing, I think that people have been promised a lot and delivered not as much. So how do we start to talk about like candidates who can tell us all the things we want and can also help us get there, right? And this was sort of our frustration with Bernie in 2016. You probably don't remember Bernie tweeted that he was gonna free a million people from jail. Do you remember that? And then everybody was like, there aren't a million people in federal prison. And he was like, my bad. And you're like, not good, right? That's like a, that's like a weird, that's like a you telling me the what 
but not having a clear understanding of the how. And I think there are a lot of people who are smart enough now to realize, and I think the pods help with that, is people know much more about the what they want. Also, though, they like know that you should have an idea of like how we should get there. That's not like a crazy notion, you know what I mean? And I think that people would be more willing to participate if they were like convinced of the what, which is easy today, but like we are not helping people understand the how. So I, I'll get to the triple instinct in a second. The other thing I think when we think about voters like this is when last year before the election, I interviewed a woman named Latasha Brown who works to organize, um, particularly in the South, African-American and often rural communities. And what she said, she said something to me that is just like stuck with me, which is that non-voters make a, the, their decision not to vote is not, it's not laziness, it's not they don't care. It is a thoughtful, well-reasoned decision. And we should have to, th we have to think about why they made that decision and try to get and try to work with them on a on like an emotional and intellectual level to get them to change the decision because too often and I have been guilty of this every politician has been guilty about it is there are two types of people there are voters and there are people too lazy to care and that's not right that is not the right way of thinking about it and we we put the onus on the voter for not voting and not on the politician for not giving the voter a reason to vote right and that that's not just having the right message or the right rhetoric it is to DeRay's point, I think this is a huge thing that's gonna matter a lot in 2020 in terms of turnout is delivering on your promises. Because he's right, people, a lot of people turned out and voted and a lot of problems that the reason they turned out did not get fixed. And so then how do you convince them to do it the next time? And so understanding that I think is very important. And just this thing where it's like, and this happens every election, some poll comes out and they'll show that the African-American Latino community are not as engaged as the, as you would expect them to be. And then everyone yells at them. They're like, why aren't they voting? And they yell at African-American leaders and Latino leaders, why aren't they voting? And so I was just saying, like, what have we done? What have we failed to do to convince them that this election matters, And right? And so on the term limits question, I very much agree there are too many old people in politics. <laughs> like, that is a problem. Um, when I am old, I'm gonna revise that position. <laughs> old, I guess older would be the thing. I worry about term limits because where it has happened in the state level, what it often does is it gives extra power to lobbyists because people are not, this has been very true in California where I live, which is people show up, they're only gonna be there for a couple terms, they don't really get to learn you know, how everything works. There aren't senior members uh, who've been there a while who know how everything works and how to write the bills. And so lobbyists are handing members pre-populated bills and they're just putting them on state, putting them on their, on their letterhead and passing them. And I think that is the dangerous part of it. I think there are things that we should, I think it is something we should really think about. I think, you know, I would not be concerned if somewhere like you can serve three terms in the Senate, right? Like that 18 years seems plenty, right? <laughs> Um, or being more aggressive on um, term limits uh, around committee chairmanships, which we have some of, but also making it less about senior status, right? Where it's basically like the longer you've been in Congress, the more power you have, as opposed to the leadership of the Congress saying the more talented you are, the more power you should have, right? Like just simply being there should not be reason to have lots of power, right? But being like really good on the issues or being a very powerful messenger, like 
if we operate by the standard way, like I believe that AOC is one of the most talented politicians we've had in a generation. She, <coughs> she is the best messenger, really, in the Democratic Party, full stop. And she's going to have to serve for like two more decades before she gets to ask questions in a ju judiciary, judiciary hearing in the first hour. Right? Like, that's just, like, that is how long it'll take because people are in con Because especially now that the country is so polarized, districts are so gerrymandered, people are just there. There's, like, a handful of, like, 20 people who may lose, may lose in a year, and everyone else is just there until they retire. And so I do think that if we could find ways that would give um, young, younger, more talented members a higher profile, um, that will also cause them to stay longer. Because one of the reasons they run for Senate, even, in, like, right away, is because... They know there's nowhere to go. I mean, the entire congressional leadership is over the age of 70, right? And so, I mean, also are most of the Democratic, leading Democratic <laughs> presidential candidates. So we, 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 got, we have some larger problems there. But so I would be skeptical. I'm a little skeptical on term limits, but I do think we have to think about how we, get, we push power down to some of the, the younger members who are more representative of the base of the Democratic Party. Let's give it up for Dan and DeRay. Can I, can I just say one thing before we, I've been, as I've been, this is my, I've been on this book tour for five days now and I've talked to a lot of people and I have sensed a growing depression among Democrats. <laughs> and you see it, it's also true in the polls, where like two months ago, all Demo most Democrats thought we would win. And now two-thirds of Democrats think we're going to lose this election. Mm. And I would just say to everyone two things. One, this is the worst part of the process. <laughs> we have been in this primary forever. The people we all, we, a bunch of people we love are now fighting with each other. It may be the candidate we love most is not winning. Maybe the candidate we love least is winning. All of them are better than Trump. And we just have to remember that this, while Trump has a lot of advantages because he's incumbent, this is a very winnable election. And we know exactly how to do it because what we did in 2018. And so I just like want people to keep the faith. Like we can do this and don't let these last few weeks or even the next few weeks get us down because <laughs> This is a, uh, we're going to have another debate next Tuesday. I don't even think you have to is watch it. Is it really another debate? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's Tuesday night, I think. Yeah, it's in South Carolina. It's Michael Bloomer's, he's going to prep for this one. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so I would just say, everyone, like, keep the faith. We can do this. We'll get through this process. We'll unify, and we can win. We can beat Donald Trump. One more round of applause. You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.